As we approached the end of the public health emergency, it became clear that there were going to be some number of people who were still on Medicaid who were no longer eligible for it. Hello, and welcome to HIMSCast. I'm Susan Morse, Executive Editor of Healthcare Finance News. We are here today with John Barquette, who is Managing Director at Berkeley Research Group. He's the former White House Senior Policy Advisor. Welcome, John. Hey, Susan. Good afternoon. Can you please first talk about yourselves and your background? Sure, yeah. So I, uh, as you said, I, I just left the White House uh, at the end of last year, where I had spent the first couple of years of the Biden administration working on the Domestic Policy Council uh, as a senior policy advisor for healthcare delivery system reform. In that role, my portfolio included oversight of uh, value-based care, Medicare Part C and D, and drug pricing reform. Um, but I also, you know, where those issues overlap with other stuff that was going on, I would work with teams of people across the administration um, on all sorts of different healthcare issues. Uh, prior to that, I had worked uh, for 10 years at uh, a startup that was called Extend Health that was acquired by Towers Watson, the benefits and actuarial consulting firm. In 2016, Towers merged with the Willis Group, and the firm became the Willis Towers Watson. I worked at the combined companies for 10 years. Before that, I was back in government. I worked on the House Ways and Means Health Subcommittee, and then in the Obama administration as part of the staff of the Secretary of HHS, working on Obamacare. I worked on delivery system reform and health insurance exchanges while doing that. Prior to all that, I worked for a Medicare Advantage plan. I have an MBA in healthcare management from the Wharton School and was a health policy major in college. So um, about 20 years of experience, mostly focused on the insurance side of things, some government, some private sector. Well, it seems like your background would make you perfect to be in the administration to advise and to do policy on different um, moves, especially to value-based care. I know the administration has been moving towards that. Were you working on the making primary care model, that one? So I was aware that DMLI was developing a primary care model, a new one to put out. Um, I was not you know, involved in the details of putting it together, which maybe uh, makes me a more appropriate person to comment on it now, I would say. <laughs> okay. Can you comment on it? Because my understanding is with primary care is that most physicians are working still for fee-for-service rather than value-based care. Is this an attempt to try to change that and finally get physicians on board with payment for quality rather than quantity? Oh, it's, it's definitely an attempt to go in that direction. Uh, I, you know, I don't know. I haven't seen a great metric that says this many physicians are value-based care physicians, that many are not. They're fee-for-service physicians. So I'm not so sure uh, how to how to really frame that um, uh, on like a 30,000 foot view. But I will say we know that for 10 years across three administrations now, Medicare, Medicaid, they've been pushing um, in general for the adoption of value-based care amongst the provider community. And that primary care is viewed as a significantly under-leveraged area where adoption of value-based care could bring a lot of value to patients uh, to the healthcare system, to finances, to the doctor's practices themselves. Uh, if if uh, the vision for that um, idealized form of primary care was, was able to be realized. And after the first decade and change, what we know is that there are definitely certain practices that 
have not really gone into it. And this model that CMMI recently announced, the making primary care model, very intentionally, you can just sort of tell from reading it, very intentionally was saying, we are going to try to attract the folks who are not yet participating in uh, uh, value-based care models, either primary care models that are already in existence or any of the ACO total cost of care models that align patients to the to the ACO via primary care. They're looking for people who whose organization or whose practice has not yet really uh, uh, dived into primary care, so uh, value-based care, so to speak. You see this as being attractive to physicians? From my understanding, they're not getting paid for a lot of the work they do. They, they, they see patients in 15-minute segments during the day, and then at home or after work, they're doing all the administrative work and not getting paid for it, or on the phone not getting paid for it. Will this allow them maybe to help with the whole burnout issue and to help them get paid for all of this extra stuff they do? Right. I, I know that that is the goal of these models. They include typically include payments um, that cover the costs of this these extra types of services that they are asked to off, offer in value-based care arrangements. Um, that said, I, I think if there's another lesson that I can point to that we've learned from the last 10 years, it's that you don't just snap your fingers and have a value-based care practice. Right. You don't just snap your fingers and, and, and become able to offer, you know, care management at really high operational levels. You have to go through a change management process. And while there are people out there who can help do that, be it consultants or conveners or, you know, different experts within a larger practices or folks who are out there designed to work with smaller practices, um, it's not the same thing as just providing care and sending a fee-for-service claim out to the patient's insurer. Um, but no, yeah, that that is part of the goal of all of these things is to make it so that the physician can get back to providing care the way many of them probably thought they would, they would work when they applied to medical school. Right. Thank you. I'd like to uh, switch gears to Medicaid because that's been a huge issue since April 1st with the redetermination process uh, starting then. Uh, from what I understand, more people have been kicked off than uh, faster than what they originally thought would happen to the point where CMS had to pause uh, the redeterminations in some states last uh, week to make sure they're getting it right. Can you can you talk about what's going on there, please? Sure. I mean, I think it's, not, it's important not to forget what, what is happening here at a really high level. At the beginning of the pandemic, Congress passed a law that said, uh, and, and the president signed, President Trump signed a law that said, everyone who's on Medicaid is going to stay on Medicaid until the public health emergency is over. There were so many questions back then. We wanted to make sure people had coverage um, while this unknown new virus was spreading around the country. And as we approached the end of the public health emergency, it became clear that there were going to be some number of people who were still on Medicaid who were no longer eligible for it, maybe because they had higher incomes now or maybe because they had you know, some other change in their lives that meant that they were no longer uh, eligible. Um, and so when the public health emergency was unwound, some number of people would be coming off, right? The public health um, emergency got unwound in the spring, but even before that, Congress passed a second law that said, no matter what, we think we're at a place for the pandemic where we can start the unwinding on April 1st. So we knew that there was going to be people coming off coverage, off Medicaid coverage, 
And the question was, can we do this in an orderly way? Can we do it in a way that ensures that people who um, would otherwise be eligible for Medicaid, um, uh, as long as they can get the appropriate, you know, renewal application, that they don't lose it just for procedural reasons, like we don't have the right address on file, so I never got the mail. Um, and that's what we're seeing in some states is in some states, there have been more of those instances than others. And it's, it's definitely frustrating to see it because when that kind of stuff happens at a big scale, it's easy to find a story of a person who has a kid who is sick and needs to get a test done and they show up for the tests, but unbeknownst to them, they no longer have Medicaid and their child who's sick can't get it. That's very frustrating for everybody who works in this space. Um, and, and yet when you've got a program that grew from 70 million people to 90 some odd million people, and then all of a sudden everybody is being renewed at once, it's a sort of an inherently chaotic thing. So that's how I sort of set the, the, the background of, of what all is happening here. And of course, states can't afford to pay for all that many people anymore because the federal funding has been stopped is my understanding. Is, is that right? That they don't have the it's, funding. It's, it's, yeah. So when they passed the original law saying you got to keep everybody on your Medicaid rolls, they increased uh, the match that the federal government pays the states to pay for people with Medicaid by 6.2%. I think it was, uh, was that was the number. And now over the next year, that's how long the states have to wind down their, their Medicaid, um, uh, uh, the increased Medicaid population that funding will sort of taper down as well. Um, but as of right now, there's still some funding there um, for it. So yes, states have to do it. It's not, um, it's not, they don't have the luxury of waiting to the last day and then figuring it all out. They have to come up with an orderly way of doing it. What we're seeing is really a bell curve of states who are taking different approaches. Some of them are saying, let's prioritize the people who we haven't heard from for since the beginning of the pandemic who were, uh, were almost, certainly have moved on and are on the roll. And others are saying, oh, let's just go by renewal date. Whoever comes up for the state, we'll start with them. And that's going to get you a different set of people who are um, coming off and different propensity to have um, be, el- be still eligible for Medicaid versus not. Um, but it's sometimes shocking to see the numbers when they come in. Well, that's just it. I wanted to ask you about numbers because the best numbers that I'm getting anyway are from uh, uh, KFF, and they said we only have a certain number of states reporting. I, I don't; it's far less than the less than forty, I think. So they have one number, and then they say, "Well, this isn't the total." So I don't know how many people actually are no longer on Medicaid. Um, you know, uh, estimates at the beginning said, "Oh, up to 18 million people are going to be disenrolled." KFS numbers right now are less than 4 million. And I don't know what this means for hospitals. I know CMS opened a special enrollment period for the ACA to get people covered. I don't know if that is working. I don't know how many people have changed from Medicaid coverage to uh, getting on the exchanges. But in your mind, what is happening right now? You, You said something about kind of chaotic, I guess that goes with the territory. But does, in your mind, do, do things need to change at a federal level to get this on course? 
or or what needs to happen to make sure people are covered and that hospitals are going to get paid when that woman goes in with a child to have a, a medical procedure done and find she has no coverage. Yeah, I mean, what, what needs to happen and what is happening is as this brand new thing, right? We've never in recent history unwound from a coverage expansion caused by a major public health emergency, right? So so no one has any expertise in this necessarily uh, going in. There are people who had thought it through and who had provided advice, but, uh, you know, once it started, it became clear that states were adopting some wildly different strategies. And what can be what can be done in a situation like this is you can start to have best practices shared, and you can have um, the the federal government weigh in either with um, technical assistance on how how to best operate things, reminding states about what flexibilities they have. States have been granted certain waivers to help them with this process. Um, the Secretary of Health and Human Services wrote a letter to states. Uh, I think it was in June, late May, early June reminding them about you know these certain opportunities that they have to smooth this out over time um to make sure that they're focusing on smaller batches of people at a time so that they can go a little further to make sure that those people aren't just being dismissed because of some clerical error um and that's the work that's that's being done right now now states susan states can take a different approach they some states might say you know what I just want to get back to the pre-pandemic state as quickly as possible. And I, I suppose that's their prerogative. Um, other states are, are going to err on the side of, you know, not trying not to kick anybody off who doesn't have to be necessarily kicked off. Um, you know, but this is where sort of the country has to come together. Folks who are focused on keeping people insured are going to have to, you know, roll up their sleeves, become advocates um, in a new way and ensure that if anyone does get inadvertently kicked off that they find their way back into the program especially those that are sick and need care facing the indignity of, of showing up at a physician's practice and realizing that the coverage isn't there anymore that is something that i think we all want to prevent right right they don't want to see that um for the patient or the hospital or, or anybody else um john thank you for your insight what do you see uh, with your experience, 20 years or and more going forward, are the big trends that you think will be coming up in healthcare from the from a policy perspective or or from any other perspective? Great question, Susan. I I think about this question first by recalling who's in charge of Washington. You've got a Democratic president that's controlling the executive branch and everything that that um, the various departments and agencies can do there. And then you've got split control in Congress. So anything that's going to change the law is going to have to be agreed upon by Democrats and Republicans. There's a, just a specific set of issues that they might agree upon in any given term. What we're seeing in Congress right now is one area of bipartisan um, agreement is that there should be PBM reform. But what has not been agreed upon is like what those reforms should be exactly. And we also haven't seen that there are, you know, 60 votes in the Senate and 218 votes in the House for any specific set of reforms. So while they 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 agree on the base that they are they should be working on it, but I would not go so far as to say they've agreed upon a, a specific set of policies that can pass. And uh, we've seen some activity in the last week that shows they're making progress. Various committees, jurisdiction, 
are are marking up laws, but they still have to go through the process of agreeing within their each each house of Congress and then agreeing across both houses of Congress and then getting the White House to weigh in before anything happens there. Okay. Anything else you'd like to address that we haven't talked about? Uh, yeah, I think uh, two things I think you can keep following uh, from the administration's perspective are a focus on um, on health equity and a focus on behavioral health. Um, on the health equity side, what I'm talking about when I say that is just making sure that whatever policies go out um, are have been thought through with respect to are they going to reach everybody or they're only going to reach certain people and not really benefit others. Um, with behavioral health, I think this administration has has just done a ton of thinking on what policies they can put out there to try to ensure that people have access to mental health care. There, the 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 policy development around behavioral health has has been going on for decades. It's it's seemingly just been improving a little bit at a time. And after the pandemic, it's very clear how much people in this country need access to behavioral health providers. And I think you just from 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 uh, mental health parity laws to Medicare Advantage policy to commercial insurance policy, we're seeing the Biden administration take a um, leave no stone unturned approach to trying to improve access there. John, thank you very much. I'd love to talk to you again against the next uh, after the next presidential election to see what your thoughts might be moving forward um, and how things may change or stay the same or accelerate. But it's been a pleasure speaking with you for Cast. Thank you. Yeah, you too, Susan. I'm going to hold my calendar. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> thank mid-November you. 2024. All Excellent. Right, thank you. <laughs>